and welcome to episode 22 of the Brood Sages, Stormbound Players with a Head for the Game. I am Freeloader, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Arthas and Sabaiku. Sabaiku, how's it going tonight? Fantastic. And Arthas, how are you doing? I am doing very great. Well, we are the Brood Sages, and as a reminder, you can always follow us at Brood Sages on Twitter, or for all of you who once upon a time wanted to get physical, our email address is thebroodsages at gmail.com. Uh, so, Arthas, real quick, uh, the tournament, the Hanu Equals tournament, uh, we have a final result, correct? Oh, yeah, we do. Tournament's finally over, and uh, Wolf takes the first place champion spot for the Hanu Ooh. Equals major tournament. And uh, Wolf actually happens to be a second placer in the uh, Reckless Attack and Defend Joust, which happened like pretty recently before this one. So uh, he's getting some good results recently. Second place would be uh, the Singularity. And um, Vox takes third place over uh, me. So I'm all the way in fourth place. But <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I'm pretty happy with that, to be honest. That's still a fantastic result. And congratulations to all four of you, uh, especially Wolf. Um, we would take a little more time on it, but I don't know if you guys have heard. Uh, but Sheepyard dropped a small set of patch notes about the upcoming yeah, just a little smidgen, you know. <laughs> We're going to do our best listeners uh, to keep this as short as possible, but the, the physical constraints of needing to talk about all of this stuff is going to probably make this our longest episode ever. And I can tell you, Subaiko's excited as all heck for having to uh, edit the whole thing down. Subaiko needs a raise, guys. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, yes. we'll double his pay from nothing to twice that. Yes. You're welcome. Lots of love, my friend. Uh, let's get the little stuff out of the way first. Uh, uh, there's quality of life and interface improvements, some of which we don't know yet, but uh, you will be able to add the last opponent. There's a little button right at the end of your match where you can say, hey, I really like that player. I would like to be able to play against that player again later, sort of a thing. I'm a little nervous about that from my Hearthstone days, Sabaiku, because of salt. When people lose, they try to add you and get, get all kind of salty and mean to you in chat. But currently, Stormbound does not have an in-game chat. So do we think this is okay? Without in-game communication, it's a lot harder to act out against someone that you just played. So hopefully that makes all the interactions positive ones. Knock on wood. We're also getting a new ranked mode screen. You'll have to swing over to Stormbound Kitty for a screenshot of that. We're getting new avatars, guys. There's 12 avatars for 1,000 coins. So uh, it's either this or level up a card to level 5. The new avatars are featuring cards from the games, uh, as well as 14 premium avatars for 200 rubies each. Man, um, Arthas, you're buying all of them, right? Uh, I don't know about that one, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'm definitely going to buy some of them for sure. Especially the rubies ones. Those are probably really good. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, with my collection now, the rubies hardly mean much to me. I'm just going to get extra copies. Huh. So, uh, okay. I'll take All the right. avatar any day. Nice. Well, my, my favorite bit of quality of life stuff is, uh, uh, an apology for the server issues they were having during the uh, previous discounted brawl, not this past one, but the one before, uh, the brawl that starts on February 25th, just a couple of days from now, will in fact be cheap as well. This I am thrilled with. All matches will now cost two thirds of their original price. Honestly, if they just said, and we're going to leave that option on forevermore, I would be thrilled. Sabaiku? Ditto. All right, moving on from there. <clears throat> uh, there will be a daily check-in calendar again in March. Uh, I love this, guys. Are we all uh, contributing uh, 
the five dollar a month. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving I them their been. paycheck every month. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> their paycheck is just the fifteen dollars from the three of us. My goodness, they work on the cheap. So we don't know what this check-in calendar consists of, but they said it'll be similar to what we got for January and February. Um, it remains the best value you're going to get when you're spending money on the game. If you're looking for extra resources, still worth it. And it makes every day feel like a holiday. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's get to some meat and potatoes here. We have new tomes in the shop. Arthas, we've got five new books. Talk to me about these. So guys, we got a bunch of different books. Uh, All of these books will have three cards each, uh, basically all of a particular race. Uh, We got a pirate book. Arg. A feline book. I'm not meowing. (laughs) An elder book a dragon book, and a really cool uh, arch dragon or arc dragon book. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. But uh, what's cool about this uh, arch dragon book is that although it's still three cards and costing twice the amount of rubies, so instead of 60 rubies for the books I just mentioned, this one's actually 120 rubies, right? Actually more expensive than the mythic. Can you believe? But let's let's think about it this way. It actually has a rarity distribution, the same as a mythic. So you only get epic plus cards, 70% epic, 30% legendary. So it's like a dragon mythic. But the reason why it's so expensive is that it's a significantly smaller card pool. I mean, I looked at the numbers, um, you know, from the entire game. It goes from 43 epic cards down to 6 epic cards and uh, 22 legendary cards to 5 legendary cards. So that went all the way from 65 cards in the in the regular mythic pool to just a simple 11. That's 17% of the original pool. I know people are complaining about the price, but like that significant change in the card pool makes it all the more valuable than just like a oh, you know, 40 rubies per card. That's fair, but but it's not helping you get your level 5 ubass, right? No, so this is definitely a targeted sort of uh, transaction, right? You're buying these because you're looking for a specific card or cards. They're not the best value, so you're not going to buy them if you're looking to just broaden your collection with as many different cards as you can. This is for when you're going after that one specific dragon that you're missing. You know, I need that last copy of Zuri, or, or I need that last copy of Shivana. All right, and Subaiku, while you're at it, walk us through the rarity distribution of the Pirate, Feline, Elder, and Dragon book. We talked about the Arc Dragon book being 70% epic and 30% legendary. The regular Dragon book is a 0% legendary. So even though it costs the same as the others, you cannot pull a legendary dragon from it. Um, But what feels bad to me, the part of this that I don't like is that you can buy a pirate book or a feline book and have a 55 or 50% chance of pulling a common. For 60 rubies, you're pretty much guaranteed statistically to pull a common out of those. Whereas elders, there are no common elders. Everything is guaranteed to at least be rare or better. Um, I I really don't like that where you're, you're paying the same amount for pirates or felines as you are elders, but the rarity distribution is very different. You can see the the actual distributions on Kitty. I understand why they do it this way. They're doing it this way because if you really are targeting the pirates, then this helps you fill out your collection, but it's not definitely not the most player-friendly way to do this. Yeah, I wonder, what would the cost be of like a construct tome in this uh, (laughs) uh, economy? (laughs) 
I would say that I think the rarity, the you know, the discrepancies in the rarity distributions is because of the actual, you know, the rarity collection of these races. I'm pretty sure they're not the same, right? Because uh, I don't think there's a common elder, right? Things like Definitely that. Definitely not. So uh, I think they got to change the distribution based on that stuff. Or increase the number of cards in the pirate and feline books and just say, you know what? We, we understand that the commons aren't valued as highly. You get more cards out of it because of that. Yeah, I guess oh, that right. would be nice. Yeah, I, w- I think I would actually like that, especially after the um, recent confusion buff. It would kind of be neat to uh, try to get more felines. So I don't think I'm going to be able to spend 60 rubies anytime soon on this. But if I were so inclined, that's one especially that, you know, I kind of cast a little side eye at and go, hey, how you doing? Um, we're going to leave that there, guys, because there's still so much to go through. Uh, the next big announcement, and I know I'm stoked for this, Arthas. I'm sure you are as well. The Heroes League. Give me one exciting thing. One thing you are excited about right now about the uh, the Heroes well, League. Well, I, I know there's one thing I'm not excited about, and that's uh, we can't meme about the Heroes League not being added anymore. <laughs> 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 it's now finally here. I'm actually super excited. Exactly. So uh, what the Heroes League is going to be, it's the new league above Diamond. So uh, now when you reach Diamond 1, you're not just stuck. Uh, obviously, you can't fall any lower than Diamond 1 now, currently in February. But once March comes around, you'll be able to get higher. Uh, you win through Diamond 1, and you are now in the new Heroes League. This league uh, has a slightly different ladder system to it than the rest of the leagues. You will start with a minimum of a 1,000 hero crowns. You gain or lose crowns when you play in both the Diamond and Hero Leagues. That's actually really important uh, based on your win losses and the strength of your opponent. So this is effectively what a lot of you from chess or you know other multiplayer online games might know as an ELO score. At the end of the month, however, oh my goodness, guys, you are ranked based on your final uh, uh, hero crowns or your final ELO score at the end of the night on the final night of the month. And let me tell you about these rewards. First off, the season's chest. The season chest is insane. And I want to make sure that I get this exactly right. At the end of the season, just for making it into the Hero uh, League, you will get 20 common cards, 16 rare cards, 8 epic cards, 3 legendary cards, 3,000 coins, 100 rubies. And that's just for making it. That's just for getting in the door. Guys, it gets better than that. The top 500 will earn an additional 10 fusion stones and a pirate book. But the top 100, if you get a top 100 finish, you're going to earn 15 fusion stones, a dragon book, and the previously mentioned 10 fusion stones and pirate book. It, 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 it stacks like that. So you're getting a total of 25 fusion stones, two different books, one pirate, one dragon, top 10, 25 more fusion stones. So that's a total of 50. You then get a feline book to go with your dragon and pirate books. The first player, ooh, baby, the first player in the ladder will earn 50 fusion stones additional, so he's got 100. He gets an arch or arc dragon book. He or she can pronounce it any way they want, okay? <laughs> Plus, they get the feline dragon pirate book. Holy smokes, guys. That's, wow. <laughs> Those rewards are absolutely bonkers. They're actually really big, but also 
you know, they might totally be really hard. I know that there aren't that many players in Diamond 1 right now. So it may, you know, like on paper, it may seem like it's very easy to get the top 100. You know, assuming you already made it to Diamond 1. But with this new incentive, who knows? Maybe the Diamond 1 player base is going to freaking like triple or something like that. So uh, we shall see, right? Well, well, Sabaiko, you and I, and, and certainly Arthas, once we make Diamond 1, we continue to play. There's a subset of the people who currently qualify for Diamond 1 who simply get to Diamond 1 because it's the only thing to achieve each month. And then they just don't play again until the season resets because what's the point, right? There's no way of knowing what that sort of silent player base really is. I'm sure Sheepyard knows, but but how on earth are you or I or Arthas at this point or any of our listeners how are we to know where we're going to fit? Like, like this is an interesting conundrum. It, it's a good question. And you can do some kind of like back of the envelope estimates. We don't know. We don't have any official numbers from Sheepyard. But let's say there's, I don't know, 100,000 Stormbound players a month. We figure 1% of them make Diamond 1. Does that sound like a reasonable proportion? I mean, back of a napkin kind of number, okay. I, I'm, I'm using round numbers because it makes it easy. But that means that... There's a thousand people in Diamond One, and the top half will get rewards. Like that feels pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that does feel pretty good. I mean, that that feels excellent. Arthas, do you think this is going to have any impact on farming? About that, I think it would. It wouldn't be the solution, but this is a really big step up in the incentives. Because, uh, like you said, even simply going to the Heroes League gives you some serious rewards from the get go, right? Compared to the Diamond Chest. And not to mention, like, these, uh, these you know, top 500 and over rewards, they're absolutely crazy, right? They're really, really good. Everyone knows how valuable fusion stones are, right? And the amazing, like, books that come with it. Um, and what's cool about this is that, yeah, like you said, even when you reach this Heroes League, there is a reason to keep playing, to keep increasing the number of your hero crowns, right? To keep really trying and uh, improving your game and having more of your own like intrinsic like personal goals in terms of like okay i really want to max this card out because it's going to help me grind those hero crowns that gives some of those like really top end players some more objectives to keep playing and progressing in the game instead of just grinding for the gold cap to get more cards that they already have right And uh, cause, uh, what's cool with the Heroes League is that uh, these high-level players, right? When you get to Heroes League, you actually get reset to Diamond instead of Platinum, right? Back then, everyone gets reset to Platinum or less. Now, uh, Heroes League players get reset to Diamond, so they will not be able to farm Platinum where most of the farmers are. But also, um, usually these farmers, like in the Plat 5, they actually have some like crazy, uh, you know, card levels. They, they can totally, they can totally punch a hole through like the rankings, right? And I really suggest they should be doing this because, uh, depending on like their state and their priorities, I'm pretty sure this is way better than grinding for gold cap. I don't know. Depends on the player. <laughs> it's certainly course. a lot more fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It depends on the player. Freeloader, you mentioned you think a silent minority of players that make it to Diamond 1 and then just drop out and don't play again. There's definitely also a minority of players that have the levels and artificially keep their rank low in order to hit the gold cap as quickly and as easily as they can. I don't know that this motivates those people to move up. Like the extra rewards are nice. 
the extra competition will definitely motivate some. But if you're just looking at the gold that you get out of this, you know, it it's an extra few days of hitting the gold cap for your reward for making it to hero. And if your focus is really just play for two hours a day, hit the gold cap to maximize your resource collection and then walk away. I don't know that this motivates those players to come up to the Heroes League. I hope it does. I think it's a great idea. And I think it's great for people who want progression once once they've hit the end game. But I'm not sure that this is the solution to farming that I, I was hoping to see. Yeah, I guess I would uh, like to rephrase because uh, I'm sure Brazoza mentioned in the Discord that this is not the solution that they were saying hmm. was going to fix farming, right? This was just going to contribute to that. This isn't the solution. This is probably the solution to one of the bigger uh, problems, which is uh, end game progression, right? So this this right. definitely uh, is aimed towards those end game players, like much like myself or a lot of people who have a really really you know high level collection, right? Because uh, at that point, when you have a high level collection, the gold cap it's it's you know it's diminishing returns. You know, you're not getting a lot for just spending the gold on nobles. It's just not enough. It's a lot of time for not actually getting much out of it. Um, no, I agree with you. And uh, look, I, I very much will enjoy playing in the Heroes League, but I'm not the kind of player that's going to be hitting the top 10. I, that's, I don't have the collection for it, and I don't have the time to put into it. Uh, you know, we didn't really talk about the ELO rankings, but... You know, a big component of that is just games played. Especially the last night. It's games played and it's uh, strength of your opponent. So if you play a lot and you win your way up the ladder so you can play stronger opponents, then you'll you'll do much better. But you have to play in order to get to that point. Yeah, I'd like to add more things to why I'm very excited for this. Especially because of me as like an endgame player, right? Well, for one, in Diamond 1. Which I the reason I really don't like going to Diamond One is because I'm fighting bots most of the time, you know, with long queue times, fighting the bots, and uh, it makes me not want to go to Diamond One, which makes me feel bad because I'm playing against lower level people in like Pat or something, because I really don't want to be playing bots, you know, even if it's easy gold cap. Again, gold cap doesn't mean anything to me. The thing is with the Heroes League, Verzosa mentioned that when you actually are in the Heroes League, you will only match up against players, not bots. So you can't just farm hero crowns off bots, right? You're going to be matched with players. Uh, another misconception is you're not going to be matched with just Heroes League players. You're going to be matched with people in Diamond as well. Because again, in Diamond, you are also collecting hero crowns before you go to Heroes League, right? So yeah, obviously you can farm your uh, hero crowns in Diamond. But uh, I think based on the formula, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't done the math yet, but I'm pretty sure that grinding hero crowns in Diamond is not the most efficient way. But like, I don't know, you guys can totally do that if you really wanted. Well, no, I don't think so, because you'd have to lose in order to stay in Diamond, which then kills uh-huh, your yeah, ELO. Yeah, yeah. You do have so, a good point. So, yeah, because you are actually punished for losses. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So in my experience is different than a lot of people's. We did not try to grind daily gold to build our libraries strong enough to be competitive. Uh, we Because that's boring. It's boring, right. And and on top of that, that's more games than either of us could afford to play a day because of, you know, just our, our daily schedules. And so because we couldn't put that kind of time and effort into just grinding for gold, we set our sights on trying to achieve the best end of season reward chess we could each month. 
Uh, and we were able to build libraries that were competitive from that vantage point. If you're not an end of game player and you're wondering, should you try to get into the hero league? Yes. If you have the ability to get there, just that end of season reward chest will do more for your, your library than just about anything else. Unless you have the time to continually grind to the point where you hit your gold cap every single day and you're buying nobles, maybe then there's a trade-off to consider. But I think for most people who can't play that many games a day, uh, the number of games that you're playing at diamond uh, or platinum uh, to win some gold it pales in comparison. This this chest is generous. It is excellent. Uh, and and so shout out to Sheepyard, I think, for making such a good chest. To Arthas's point, it's also necessary for the people who are all level fours and fives uh, because you just need so many resources when that's your level of your library. Uh, to to make any sort of impact on your deck. So I think it's appropriate. No, I agree with you. And I want to touch on that because I definitely remember being in gold and looking at the diamond chest and thinking, gosh, that's just so much. If you can already make it to diamond, you don't need that much. The rich are just getting richer here. And then I made it to diamond and I started trying to level up more cards to to level four so I could play a variety of decks. And I tried to level up my cards to level five. And I was like, gosh, this just doesn't go far enough at diamond. Um, so it really doesn't. <laughs> so I do, I do appreciate a little extra resources at the end of the month. I do think that it's definitely appropriate and, you know, it, it's nice. It has to be enough to make people want to try for it because just playing for pride and shooting for the top spot only works for a certain portion of the population you know first you have to be motivated in that manner and second you have to believe that you have a shot and if your whole collection is level four and everyone you're going up against in heroes league is level five you're not going to believe that you can make it to the top 10 well said well said indeed so that leads into what i wanted to say about about the heroes league too like a big part of diamond one was that once you make it you can't drop out and wins and losses don't matter so much so people would just experiment with different things. And the one thing I am worried about with the Heroes League is losing that sense of experimentation. Because if people really do take it seriously and try to hit that top 10, try to hit that number one, they're not going to be playing with off-meta decks that are fun or, and trying to, that they're trying to optimize. They're going to be playing what is the most efficient and what they think works best. And that, that might take a little bit of the fun out of being in the Heroes League. Well, that's interesting. Um, our experience from playing in Hearthstone was that uh, you effectively had two metas in, in Legend, right? You had the 500 and above tryhards, people who were legitimately trying to compete for tournament spots, etc. And then everyone else who was just thankful for having made it to Legend <laughs> and were now memeing with the most craziest of decks. I, 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 I'm hopeful that we see something similar here, which is, you know, people who... Sure, there will be people who are extremely competitive and want to do that, but you'd have to know up front that you're you're committing. If you want a top ten finish, you're committing to a good six to eight hour night of the of, of the end of the month just play fest. You have to grind that time frame, or you'll lose your spot in the top ten. Um, because if you're not willing to do that, there's at least a dozen other people who are, and you'll just you know you can't camp. That won't work. So. 
for all those people who look at that and say, well, top 10 would be cool. Uh, maybe I'll try it once, but the rest of the time, I just want to kind of get to hero and not worry about it. Um, I think there will be a subset of people who are just going to kind of, you know, chill once they get there and, and have some fun and meme like they did in Diamond 1. Arthas, what do you think? I can speak from experience that, you know, a lot of those online games I play that have like that matchmaking like uh, score, like this ELO that we're talking about. Um, there are a lot of people that still play casually despite playing in rec. And the, the biggest fundamental uh, thing that makes this happen is because, well, as of right now, Ranked is the single, you know, the only real game mode we can play. Brawl is not an everyday thing, and Brawl costs gold. Ranked is, like, the only way we can really play, right, outside of friendlies. At that point, like, for people who want to have fun, that's the only way they can be having fun, whether they get to Heroes League or not. So if those a lot of those players who do reach Heroes League We'll still probably find ways to entertain themselves depending on what uh, they find, you know, motivates them in the game. Like for me, yeah, it's definitely uh, to build new decks, to build cooler off-meta decks and make them as efficient as possible. I'm still going to be doing that in the Heroes League, probably for like most of the month. And then maybe at the last week or the last few days, I will try hard. But those last few days are like nothing compared to the rest of the time I'd be having fun. I like that you said maybe there. You're not going to maybe that. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. Excellent. So uh, moving on from there, we have a couple of balance changes. Um, Not too many cards being uh, changed this month. We have three of them. I'll go through the three uh, balance changes first, and then we can discuss. No buffs this month. So all three nerfs, uh, uh, Fortification Tonic will be moving its mana cost up from two to three mana at all levels. Same exact buffing that it's doing now, just costs a little more. Harry Chestnut's strength now down to 12 from 13 when at level 5, and its ability only drains 2 at level 5 instead of its current 3. All other levels of Harry Chestnuts are exactly the same on March 1st as they are on the uh, last day of February. Lastly, Hunter's Vengeance mana is now up to 3 at all levels uh, from 2 mana, but the damage is the same. Okay, guys, these three nerfs all feel like they're targeting the only two tier one decks from our meta report this month. And I'm not saying we should take credit for this, <laughs> uh, but it does seem rather targeted at uh, uh, mid-range Ironclad and uh, Control Shadowfen. What do we think? Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely obvious, right? Um, Fortification Tonic being an absolute demon in ranked, right? Having an easy four or five mana turn with a big unstable four tonic turn is enough to win the games 90% of the mm-hmm. time, right? And it's just a matter of getting lucky at that point. And even if even if they don't pull it off in the early game, they can just pull it off at seven mana with even more units and then they win. <laughs> and then um, feels bad man. Yeah. With you know with Harry Chestnuts finally oh my gosh. Um the ability going down to three. Uh the strength going down is a bit iffy. Not gonna lie. That's a bit harsh after they removed the three ability, right? Now it's only two. I feel like the strength nerf is mm-hmm. a bit much. Because uh, removing, you know, nerfing the ability itself is already nerfing its survivability. They nerfed it even more by bringing down the strength. I, I would say that it was definitely a given and the right choice for them to uh, reduce the ability. Yeah, I think that is uh, that needs to happen. And a lot of people would agree on the Discord. But yeah, the strength, I feel like that's a bit harsh. <laughs> But I mean, that's what well, the it original is the original mentioned the original mentioned uh, uh, 
nerf was going to be just to strength and not to drain. Yeah. Uh, so if if the listeners here don't already know and haven't caught up with the thousands of messages in the Stormbound Discord after the patch notes released, <laughs> or actually before, um, Brazosa mentioned that there was going to be the original nerf for chestnuts was actually minus one strength at all levels, effectively killing the card at every level except level five while keeping the same power level at level 5. Everyone was like, what the heck is that decision? <laughs> it, like That just kills the already unviable... Well, not unviable, that, that's an exaggeration. But the already underwhelming state of the level 1 to 4 version of Chestnuts, making it even worse. Like, imagine a level 1, 6 mana, 4 strength, that literally dies to Siege Breakers. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, was not, that, that one was a little tough. tough. Uh, and um, a lot of the I'm community... Glad that they on that yes yes a lot yeah, of the community no. uh, spoke their opinions very loudly about this change and they really believed it was not the right thing and i am again so very proud that sheepyard was able to react to uh, the community's overwhelming feedback on that much like what they did with scrap planners before you know when they buffed it um mm-hmm, i don't want to mm-hmm. get into it much but like yeah like they had a particular original buff plan for scrap planners and the community was saying that's way too much and then they fixed it and now it's great. I love that they did the same for Chestnuts. I love that they are responding to the community as well as they are right now. So big, yeah, big I, shout out I to totally them. Agree. I, I think the 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 health nerf alone without changing the drain at level five was irrelevant. Yes. If Chestnuts drops from 13 to 12 health but still drains, it's like effectively that's Sheepyard saying, hey, everybody who has level five Chestnuts have some fusion stones. <laughs> Yeah, right. Oh my it's, gosh. It's, it's it is. Congratulations, you have level five chestnuts. Have some fusion stones and just keep playing it because nothing is different. Um, I do agree with you that levels uh, four through one are underwhelming um, and didn't need the nerf. Uh, but I think that now, effectively, so is level five. Uh, it's now a fine card, which is good. You know, we don't need broken cards in every class. Um, the one thing that I do think is a little unfortunate about it is I didn't feel like it was particularly oppressive currently in the meta. And the only deck that was really able to keep Ironclad midrange in check was Control Sh- uh, Shadowfen. And so my concern is by choosing to do the Harry Chestnuts nerf right now, you're making the only counter to the strongest deck in the game effectively, I don't want to call it unplayable, but I'm not sure that it's still a relevant tier one deck anymore. And if it's not a strong enough counter to the strongest deck in the game, have you really nerfed Ironclad? Yeah, it's still, change to Ironclad is still very relevant because now what you're doing is you're promoting other counters to that Ironclad deck, right? A Hunter's Vengeance, costing three on all levels but doing the same amount of damage still clears a rush deck pretty well but now it does it a turn later now it's harder to develop after you play hunter's vengeance and that's really important because hunter's vengeance wasn't just a value play clearing the board it was also a tempo play because it costs so little that you could easily develop 
significant strength behind it. And now that's just a little bit harder and that lets the rush deck stay in the game a little bit or come back into the game a little bit more easily. You know, especially coming out one turn later, if you want to play it with your gifted recruit, instead of doing it on four, you have to do it on five. If you do it on five, that means that your opponent has a chance to play something big that Hunter's Vengeance doesn't clear or has the opportunity to ban units of the same type that Hunter's Vengeance doesn't clear. And that's it's hard to understate the importance of that because now it's not an auto-include in these ironclad decks that are abusing it. Now it's really just a control tool, I think. Knock on wood, you know, that's, uh, that's obviously the intent of the balance change. And on top of that, the Fort Tonic being three levels slows down the ironclad deck a little bit more, right? Now, now with these two changes, it makes it just a little bit easier to counter. I agree with you. I don't think the power level of the ironclad deck is really changed, but you're slowing it down to the point where your opponent can either outrush it or respond to it better because they have an extra mana or two on their end also. Right. Uh, back then, you know, with Hunter's Vengeance at two mana, it was such an easy swing turn for just two mana, you know? And like, yeah, like at, like at four mana, you know, after like uh, an opener, someone did like green prototypes, saber paw or something, like that's a lot of tempo, right? As a first play. And then you just wipe it with Hunters while playing something like Gifted. Even crazy, like um, green prototypes summon militia, right? That just like completely turns the tide instantly. And uh, yeah, I love that it's three mana now because yeah, like, like Subaiku said, Normally would happen like that kind of massive swing turn will happen sig- like uh, effectively a turn later. And uh, we all know how big of a change that makes on the board per turn, right? Because um, with an extra turn, Russia's already pressuring your base versus them being in the middle rows. Well, that's true. That's true. But but what in a rush deck is going to survive? What in a rush deck that you're going to play on mana turns three or now four is going to survive the Hunter's Vengeance if it's played a turn later. Siegebreaker, Edric. <laughs> okay, you're playing is, Edric in a rush deck? Yeah, absolutely. Which is maybe. I, I, which have, is I maybe. have another idea. Personal and, servers. Uh, one, of the, one of the tendencies that rush decks have is a lot of runners. Because uh, runner chip is very, mm-hmm. very powerful in the meta. And uh, having that extra turn to bust runners into the enemy base, deal that early damage for the easy closer um, in the mid game, while also making their Hunter's Vengeance less effective because there are no units of yours that will get hit by it. They have already gone into their base. It's actually a big deal. Hmm. Big deal. Okay, okay. I can see that. Yeah, I, I, I feel like Hunter's Vengeance is either a control tool or it's a tech tool for mid-range decks to counter an oppressively rush meta. Uh, because, right, like, so mid-range decks tend to lose, you know, on paper... They tend to lose to uh, rush decks because they just can't handle the speed. Um, I feel like for the mana, Hunter's Vengeance still deals so much damage and can clear almost everything that a rush deck would be able to play. And again, rush decks are, are, are constrained by the fact that the good cheap cards tend to be a variety of races, which you know plays hard into uh, Hunter's Vengeance. So even at three mana, I think if there's not a lot of rush in the meta, you don't run it. You play something else. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you play something to handle additional mid-range opponents like a Windmakers um, or something. Or confinement, right? Uh, but, right or, or potentially confinement. Um, but if the meta starts getting too rushy, you take out that tech card and you put Hunter's Vengeance back in. And I feel like it's impossible, or impossible is maybe a strong word, but it's very difficult 
to imagine with Hunter's Vengeance still being as powerful as it is, that there could ever be a tier one rush deck that is thought to be so oppressively powerful that it's the best deck in the game. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to agree with that point. But I guess, um, you know, it's been many months now that they've been nerfing Rush. Maybe this is their intention, at least for a few more months, that Rush is a little bit down, right? <laughs> I don't no, know. that's okay. Look, not every not every deck needs to be the best, right? Um, so I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that this is wrong. I'm just saying that as it currently stands, it's been several months of Ironclad midrange being um effectively the most powerful deck in the game, and I'm not seeing a like what other control deck do we now think or what other mid-range deck because it won't be a it won't be a rush deck if a rush deck starts to rise up to to challenge ironclad mid-range hunter's vengeance is still a fine card in that meta uh to counter that so so it has to be a control or a mid-range deck that's going to challenge ironclad mid-range and i just i don't see it nothing got uh, buffed right so how much weaker do we feel ironclad midrange is that we think Zuri Swarm can challenge it? Or maybe Winter with Dawn Sparks, right? One extra turn to get Dawn Sparks down, one extra turn to get uh, Siren or yeah. your own confinement to answer. Like that one extra mana might actually make Winter Control really a viable counter instead of you know getting over on early. Oh, yeah. Okay. I agree with that. I mean, especially with Winter still having mana gain, right? <laughs> that one extra mana isn't that much. <laughs> but not no no no. But not only does it have mana gain, it no longer has to worry about chestnuts, which was one of the worst cards for it. Right? Winter Pack is normally thought of as favored into Shadowfen, right? Like Shadowfen is favored into Swarm, generically speaking. Winter Pack is generically favored into Shadowfen. But then suddenly Shadowfen has this one card that it doesn't matter how often you freeze or or whatever their board, they just keep chipping away at you with this one dang yeah, card. Yeah, like back, back then, Chestnut's uh, re-ability, it would just out-damage all of this absolutely bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> it should not but, happen. But now it's not. Now it's not. Like, do you do you actually see Shadowfen Control having a? It's certainly not going to be tier one anymore. But do you could you, could you even say confidently that it's going to be the upper half of tier two now? I would still say yeah. Ubus is still there. Ubus still kicking strong, you know. <laughs> and um, like Shadowfen's got a ton of big runners too. Right. So you don't build the deck in the same way, right? The chestnuts are not the focus of the deck now like it used to be. The chestnuts are a good card in the deck, but they're not the card you build around. I don't I don't think it's a card you put in the deck anymore. I would say you'd still put in the deck. I mean, I, chestnuts is, I would still say, the best chip card out there in the game, even with the two ability, just because of how easy it is to trigger and how many ways you can hit the enemy while keeping board presence because of how strong the strength is, right? You know, even still at 12. That's still limiting their options severely while their time's ticking. You know, it's a big deal. Nah, I, 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 I think I think Boomers is 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 the best chip card in the in the game now. Okay, I guess that's up for debate. I guess we shall see for with the meta, right? Um, we can't really say it's a big change with chestnuts. We shall see what it does it to is. people. It is right. It's definitely a big change, but uh, I don't. The reason why all these changes are important is because they don't occur in a vacuum. The, these three changes are definitely going to have interactions with each other, with the other decks in the meta. It's going to shake things up quite a bit, I think. Yeah, I, th I think so. I, th I think Shadowfen Control actually is going to see a rework. Um, I imagine there you're going to you're going to look for your value in a different direction because I, I just I don't think that that Chestnuts is enough anymore 
you're going to you're going to want to have a runner or something in the deck that gets you additional value like a cordia or i don't or know something it's still pretty good in shadow yeah, right sure exactly and the butcher is still really powerful <laughs> well yeah but if you're going to go butchers then you're going to probably go a little bit more mid-range because if you've got butchers and rain bragda seems really sexy well, at that point right well, i don't know one of the one of the amazing shadow and control decks i run is a uh, runner chip you know saber mm-hmm. lime limbs butchers and then some kind of chip card doesn't need to be chestnuts but i like chestnuts because it's the best sure <laughs> you sure just keep running, you just keep though. clearing the board you keep running uh, runners into their base their hunter's vengeance doesn't do anything to you it may even hurt your own chestnuts and it's worse for them and uh you, you win like that in a controlled fashion just um using runners instead of you know the broken chestnuts before yeah yeah maybe ubas uh being a mana cheaper and you know you can just do more with your mana each turn uh, from it, so that would be my guess. I, I don't, I don't know about about putting chestnuts into the deck anymore. I'm just, I'm skeptical. Uh, uh, Sabaiku and I have experimented quite a bit with his level four chestnuts, trying to replicate the success I had with my level five, and it just didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen in the brawl, the toad brawl. It didn't happen uh, in diamond one or in in uh, you know in in playing in diamond. It's just that less of a chip when you have to do 20 damage is really impactful. It's probably still fine in platinum uh, uh, with a 17 base health cap, but it's just that those extra three points of damage have to come from somewhere. And it's really hard to imagine that you're going to try to do that with a level Honestly, five chestnut. I know, I know that I've mentioned this in the discord a lot already, but uh, in my experience, uh, it's really hard. Honestly, you really shouldn't be comparing too much. The current level four chestnuts with the, post nerf level 5 chestnuts sure they have the same ability but uh, that 12 strength is actually big okay when i used to play level 4 chestnuts in diamond one huh? it was still really good actually it was actually a very good contender against the pre-nerf post uh queen bucks okay level 4 chestnuts well actually it was level 3 back then but it's, it's literally the same stats as level 4 now but um the, the <laughs> only thing the only thing um that was holding back this 10 strength to ability chestnut was the 10 strength there was just too many times where if you're triggering it it's a little too weak now um there are a lot of people with like 10 strength tokens because of harvester and mers just destroys chestnuts um the post nerf level 5 chestnuts now is actually going to be surviving a lot of those it's still going to be easy to trigger and uh i really think it's still very viable and uh i think it's i think it's not it's not doing the card justice to compare it to the level four ten strength version. I don't think it's the same. There's too many thresh- thresholds that it surpasses when it breaches the ten strength. The the one thing I I want to say though is just nothing else is getting nerfed. Your hunter's vengeance is still going to deal five or six points of damage to it. Your toxic sack is still going to deal five or six points of damage to it. Uh, your witches will still deal three damage to it. It not growing back three each hit has me very nervous about its, well, you can trigger it three times in a turn kind of a thing. Like, yeah, maybe, but that's going to be a lot harder to come by. You know, very good arguments on both sides of the topic, but uh, I guess we'll have to see for ourselves. And uh, let's just look at the rest of the changes that we got from the patch notes. All right, guys, we also have a couple of new cards to discuss. Uh, You will be getting one of them. You're going to have to wait a little while, though, because it's being released on March 19th. And this is the Lameless Flizzard. Nope, sorry, sorry. I'll work on that again. It is the Flameless Lizard. This is a, well, a vanilla dragon. (laughs) It's big. It's common. It's five mana. Going through its uh, uh, level progression, seven, nine, 11, 
13, 15 strength with zero movement. Uh, aside from it not being in the game yet, and therefore there's some hype, you know, waiting for it to show up. Arthas, uh, chalk bean, another <laughs> <Better> vanilla. <laughs> okay, you know, firstly, let's just think about the implications because you know the objective view of like, oh, vanilla's ad is just like, uh, meh, right? But implications are again, card pools increasing, right? Where a lot of people are getting a bit worried because of the income right now, um, and the card pool increasing, it's a bit harder to get the card you want. But uh, another implication that I noticed when um, when I'm looking at the leveling here is that um they actually deviated away from Paladin's leveling system. I mean, normally, Ooh. a 7 strength vanilla card at level 1 would normally level up by 7, 8, 10, 12, 15. But here, they actually uh, they have some variance in the levels 2, 3, and 4, having the weird odd number uh, strengths such as 9, 11, and 13, further uh, solidifying that they're actually deviating away from Paladin's leveling system. Because uh yeah the back then the uh, the leveling system it's uh it's a bit flawed there's a lot of uh, a lot of weird percentage increases and interaction changes because of the way the leveling's uh, done but this one it, it really shows that they're really going for that which I think is a good thing to be honest what's also nice about that is that this means that the five mana card with zero movement will always be at those middle levels like you said just a little bit stronger than the five mana with movement that would otherwise be an even trade with them. Oh, good point. Yeah, so that's yeah, a pretty even big deal. at level like three or four. Yeah, no, that's a good. Yeah, yeah, Arthas is right. That's a big deal. And another cool thing, which I'm a bit excited, is that uh, this could totally fit in a Chunk Beam deck. So if you guys don't already know, Chunk Beam is a Shadow and Dragon deck that I created, which uses Sunbeam and the many buffing cards like Potion of Growth and Spare, and it's uh, absolutely phenomenal. Extremely fun. Not even off meta anymore. It's totally meta now. Everyone's playing it. Trunk Beam. And the Flameless Lizard being, um, you know, five mana, zero movement. So it actually has some serious initial strength. Yeah, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can just drop this bad boy near your baseline, let it live for a turn, and then next turn, your Sunbeam is chunky. Uh-huh. Exactly. And, you know, in the Trunk Beam deck, usually you want to play like Cordia. Cordia is a pretty big body. And then even if you don't get a buff, Sunbeam is pretty good. But now you can play not Cordia. You can play this for a mana earlier. And then just play a really big Sunbeam right after. Um, I'd say like if I was really thinking about the viability of it, it's prob- it probably is viable in ranked. And I'm definitely going to try it. You know, assuming I have the levels, I probably won't for a long time. But uh, in equals, in equals, Trunk Beam is actually uh, it's it's skyrocketing in terms of popularity, um, which I'm really proud of. Not gonna lie, but uh, this one's gonna be powerful in equals. I would say seven strength. Oof. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's interesting because not only Sunbeam. But uh, Ludic Matriarchs right wants a dragon to stick on the board in order to take advantage of that. So it it does maybe let you set up some plays and maybe Dragon see a little more use because of that. But I, I think you can slot it into the Chunk Beam. I'm not so sure that it necessarily, as a five mana zero movement card, opens anything else up other than uh, maybe one more card you fit into your deck in the Dragon Brawl. <laughs> yeah, that, that's totally a, that's totally a possibility. <laughs> All right, well, we'll find out more when it uh, arrives on March 19th, so midway through the season. Uh, The other card actually is going to show up before 
the current season ends, actually, and that is the Temple of Space. Space, space. Uh, it is being released on February 26th. It's a three mana tower, ironclad only, and it levels up through its uh, 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 progression as follows three strength, four strength, five strength, six strength, and seven. It has possibly one of the most non confusion based confusing texts of any <laughs> card in the game. So I will do my best here, dear listeners. Here we go. When played with a friendly copy on the board, teleport, and then again by levels, two, three, four, six, eight surrounding units from it, then destroy both temples. Otherwise, return to the hand. Now, return in this case is a little bit of a misnomer because uh the card is returned to hand effectively, kind of like Omni. Yeah, like so, Omni. so you get a copy of it back to your hand. So the temple stays on the board. Mm-hmm. Correct. The temple doesn't leave the board, but the card comes back to your hand to be played again. Uh, the copy is also three mana. So if you only play one copy, you get a three mana Fort of Ebonrock effectively, which isn't bad because uh, it turns out Fort of Ebonrock is decent at three mana. But and here's where it gets weird. Uh, when you have two of them, so this is, I want to get this right. So guys, make sure that I'm saying it correctly. You play the first one around, uh, the units that you wish to teleport. So you place it somewhere where all the units that you want to teleport are surrounding this particular tower. Then you play the second tower somewhere else on the board and all the units surrounding the first tower or however many are available because of level will be teleported to the second tower unless something's in the way. So if there's a, a wall or an edge of the board or uh, a unit tower, whatever, in one of the cells, then a unit won't be teleported. It will remain where it used to be. Otherwise, everything's going to go from tower A to tower B, and then both towers fall apart. All right, let me see if I get this. So the first tower you play defines the unit that will move. The second yes. tower that you play defines where they will move to. Mm-hmm. They will move to the same position relative to the second tower that they are next to the first tower? Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it takes the same formation, like, you know, in the perspective of the first tower and brings it to the second tower, if possible, like if there's space for them. If you don't have the levels, it will randomly select units from the first tower that are surrounding it to teleport, but they will, again, be teleported to the same relative position at the new tower. Now, what's interesting here is that this does not say it will teleport friendly units. It just says surrounding units. So it will move your opponent's units also. Oh, yeah. There, there, there is a hilarious uh, 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 situation where, that will never happen because this should not be played in an aggro deck. But in an aggro v aggro matchup where you base lock your opponent and then they base lock you and they're just like, you know what? I'm going to win next turn. And you simply play tower a defensively on your second row and then you throw it i don't know all the way to the second row of your opponent's side of the board suddenly all of his <laughs> units went from being on your base to being in the middle row of the board <laughs> it's just so stupid really it's hilarious and that's lovely i love it can can i please preach how freaking awesome this card is okay because i know a lot of people are saying this is totally unviable. Why would you ever play the six mana for no value on the board? Because the structures die. Everyone's thinking, this is a completely underwhelming card. 
let me just say, I got some very, 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 very detailed dreams last night about this card, okay? <laughs> I did a lot of theory crafting before sleeping, and uh, let's just say uh, they stuck in my head, and I got to playtest them in my brain. So, there are a lot of things you can do, okay? For example, let's let's get it out there that um, I know people are saying this is six mana, right? Because uh, you could technically uh, play it as a pair, right? Play the first structure, play the second structure on the same turn. That is six mana, of course. But you don't have mm-hmm. to do that. You don't have to do that. You nope. can literally play the first tower at three mana, and then you can play the second tower the next turn, right? Sure, that's still six mana, but also let's think about it this way. You don't even have to play the second tower. You can just play the three mana structure and get all the cool synergies like Fortonic and, and Hearth Guards. You don't need to use the ability can just use the ability when it's useful like uh i would say probably the best place to put your set your first tower as a setup is probably the second row of your baseline because that's where most of your units will easily be and um you can just play the second one whenever just teleport you know your units forward same with enemies who are attacking you it's defensive and offensive but it's a really really nice setup other really cool synergies is like teleporting away enemy pressure cards right like uh, if they have devastators on your baseline embers on your baseline poof they're, they're somewhere else now, you know? And um, you don't have to do the six mana that turn. You could have totally set up the first tower there like two turns ago. And you just like, oh, you just decided to teleport them this turn, you know? You can even refresh your Phoenix, right? Your Project Phoenix that walks in the enemy baseline. Because, you know, usually when your Phoenix walks in the enemy baseline, you're never going to see that Phoenix again because it's not going to respawn. No, you can totally teleport it back to the middle of the board. <laughs> and, now it's, and now it's immortal <laughs> again, you know? <laughs> oh, oh, you know what? You know what's an even even cooler even cooler things you could do? You can you can uh, combo it with Temple Guardians. You can play the first, tem- first temple, right? Play the Temple Guardians T-Pos, teleport them to the enemy base. Or, or, you know what's even more spicier? You put the first one on the enemy units, uh, like a bunch of enemy units on your baseline, teleport them to their other enemy units, like near their baseline, and then you know how the, the temples destroy themselves. There is now an empty middle tower. Just place your void surges and blow them up. It's freaking awesome. There's so many things you that can do with this card. <laughs> yeah, it's a unique card. It's a new material. I love it so much. I, I encourage people to play around with it as much as they can. It's a legendary structure. It's not going to be cheap. Good luck finding it. I hope you do. I honestly do. I hope I find it. I want everybody to experiment with it and come up with some really creative clips that they can put on YouTube because I, I really look forward to seeing it. There's so many interesting interactions, and I agree with you, Arthas. This is something that you can just set up defensively on the second row from your base and your opponent has to respect it because they don't they don't know what kind of shenanigans you're going to get mm-hmm. up to if they leave it around. They can't just go around it because if they try to go around it, you can move their units into a place where it's advantageous for you. You know, I'm not so sure about the interaction with Temple Guardians. Like, yes, it will work. <laughs> but if the Temple Guardians last a turn, then they walk away from the tower and it's hard to teleport them. Uh, but, you know, like these are these are the kinds of things that you can play with, experiment with, and see if you can get it to work. Yeah, consistently. you know, a bunch of the a bunch of the scenarios I mentioned, they are very very situational. But I would definitely say that the most practical application in terms of setting up this teleport aggressively, because that's what most people want. They want to teleport their own units towards the enemy baseline. Right? That's what everyone wants. Okay, let's think about it this way. Um, you know how the uh the units are teleported relative to their positioning of the first one, so they actually keep the formation that you um they had 
at first, you know, given there is space, you can actually set up some really cool pressure formations somewhere else on the board. Like, let's say on your first and second row, you have this diagonal formation of a big unit and another smaller unit, right? Usually, right. you can have a bigger unit on the enemy's corner and then the smaller unit diagonal to it, which protects it. But then if it's only like at the middle of the board or even on your baseline, it's not as threatening. But, you know, given that positioning, you can just teleport it to the perfect spot they need to be and bam, it's instant pressure. You know, it's freaking awesome. <laughs> Teleport your boomers over to uh, where your opponent doesn't have anything in the way. Exactly. I mean, the the uh, um, first thought that I had with this was basically pressuring my opponent's baseline and throwing this in my second row and basically saying either you have to, if you want to try to out aggro me, you have to go through this because if you try to just go around it, I'm just sending everything back. Like it's just not going to work. So you, you, you as an aggro deck, if you're facing a race position where your opponent's now trying to pressure you and you just you know your deck doesn't play very good defense you've just got to go all out that's an okay position to be in until you see this played and then you've got trouble because you either have to get rid of it or you have to deal with the possibility that all the the you know you put the lawless to one side because you don't want it to trade in and you put this to the other side because you don't want it to attack and now you've got you've basically got the thing surrounded and all of those units are going to be nowhere near your opponent's baseline the following turn like you just you you already know the other copies just waiting to be played yeah. let let's not forget you you almost always have frontline against the rush player cuz they don't care about it <laughs> now they're going to have right. to exactly <laughs> right exactly no no but that's 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 my point that's where i see the best use of it is anywhere where you were going to play fort tonic anyway or uh, not fort tonic pardon me fort of Ebonrock. You could play this just like Fort of Ebonrock. Well, the only issue with it is that this is cycling. an ironclad card. You could play Fort Tonic with it also. Stack up some yeah. units behind it, play Fort Tonic and buff them up, and then send them to the other side of the board. Yes. Your, your opponent needs to decide whether they want to destroy the tower and risk this giant thing just marching through the board or leaving the tower up, knowing that the other half might get played next turn and suddenly that giant unit that's been Fort Tonic and all the rest of it is, you know, halfway down yeah, the board. I think it's just so cool because not only is it defensive that you're teleporting their units away, but usually when you're defending against rush decks, you're also having units near that temple of space. So not only are you pushing their units back, but you're putting your defense units forward, further like, you know, reducing their time in the game. <laughs> Yeah, and there's going to be, like like Savaiku said, there's going to be some weird edge cases too where once you've got this in your deck, you're going to find things like, oh, hey, I should just teleport my boomers over here so that way they get a nice clear shot. I can activate them twice. My opponent was trying to play around the boomers, but now they can't. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about something I'm pretty sure the audience here is thinking, well, what happens when you play Mia next to it? All right, well, we actually got the answer for you. And now let me explain it. Uh, let's say there's, uh, you know, because only one copy of the structure can exist at a time on the board. As soon as you play a second one, they basically die, right? So, Mia, actually, when you trigger the Temple of Space, it will randomly spawn another Temple of Space on the board, like, relative to your frontline. Much like Summon Militia. It's like Summon Militia, but, you know, Temple of Space. So, it, it spawns another Temple of Space and then teleports things from the first to the second. Hmm. If there's an obstruction in the way, it won't teleport the unit. You can't have two exist on the same square of mm -hmm. the board at the same time. 
So it requires space. But yeah, anywhere inside your front line, which is crazy. That's so much fun. <laughs> and you- I, I can see a deck with that and chaotic pupil and a whole bunch of other RNG based <laughs> ironclad cards and just call it casino ironclad. <laughs> You know, you know, it's a really cool interaction. Uh, someone mentioned uh, Dirk in the Discord was saying, "Oh, you know, what if you um, what if you had a siege assembly as well on the board, right? And um, an enemy unit's actually blocking that siege assembly. Oh, you just put a temple of space near the enemy unit, play Mia, teleports the unit away, and then siege assembly hits the base." <laughs> oh gosh that's awesome (laughs) it's important to note that this card while it may never be the most powerful card in the game it is unique and it screws up your opponent's plans so much and (laughs) screwing up what your opponent is trying to do even if it doesn't win you the game is still the most fun you will have in this game (laughs) <laughs> yes and it is definitely actually value for you when you can limit your enemy's options it, it that that's what can win you games against really good players just limiting their options it's a big one yeah for sure for sure um and this one this one again it, it's not just limiting the options it's posing a question to them that forces them to play a different game plan than they were playing right like one of the complaints that we have about playing into for example ironclad midrange is that it does what it does. It's going to buff its units. It's going to march down the field. It doesn't really care about anything you're doing and doesn't really try to counter you. You play this card, your opponent is immediately trying to figure out what's the best course of action. Do I kill it? Do I leave it up? What do I do? Do I put units near it? Do I keep units away from it? I don't. Do I play forward? Do I play back? I don't know. But it's going, I will say this, Reign of Frogs will gum up the works on this thing because it'll make it very difficult to ever find a place to put the second tower uh, to get any real movement, right? Like Reign of Frogs, not for nothing, will make the teleportation kind of crazy. Especially before people get it leveled up, right? Early on when people still have it levels one, two, three, it's only going to move two to four units at that point. It could just move your frogs and that's it. It might not do what the opponent actually wants it to do. (laughs) You keep on using that tower. I do not think it does what you think it does. (laughs) Just keeps my frogs alive for (laughs) Klaxi. All right, guys. So those are the two new cards. I've got to say, I'm really stoked that the first, well, the second of the two that we talked about, but the, the first one coming up is actually coming up even before the meta sees the reset at the new season. So so the last couple of days of this month are going to be insane <laughs> with people who are just like, well, I've already ranked up as high as I want to rank up. It's time to just bust this temple of space, 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 space and see what it can do. Um, normally at this point in our podcast, we would do the card of the week. I don't know, guys. I think that we're just going to have to say the Temple of Space was the card of the week. (laughs) So that means that the main portion of the episode is over, uh, meaning that it's time for me to remind you all to please contact us, preferably our channel in the Stormbound Discord server, but you can also use Twitter at BroodSages, or you can email us at thebroodsages at gmail.com. We also now have an additional way for you to reach out and support us. The uh, new Gumroad account we've started. You can become patrons of our work. You can check that out. Uh, the link is on Stormbound Kitty on our homepage. And finally, it's uh, time to hear from our listeners. This week, we hear from Debnath. He says, hi, everyone. 
I hope you guys are fantastic. I'd like to know from you guys, which card art style are your favorite? Mine are token knights. Those chunky shining plate armor are something else. If you didn't talk about it on the podcast, remind Sabaiku to talk about MKM's 200 IQ Bisanu on Elder's Brawl. Uh, lastly, stay hydrated, everyone. He also said in a separate comment that Arthas's new theme song, Climax, is the best moment in Stormbound history, <laughs> and I agree. Very flattering. It's, uh, it's accurate. Um, card art style. What's your favorite card art style? Sabaiku, you go first. And not just because it's the uh, mascot of our show, but I'm going to go with the Toads and with the Brood Sages in particular. I love the Toad art. love that they're always carrying mm. these battle axes. Uh, I love the little shield on the Brood Sages back. That's going to be my guy. All right. And Arthas? Mine's definitely the dragons. <laughs> I love the many different shapes and the forms they have. I mean, with Eloth looking like an amazing chunky trash can. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. I want a plushie like him. <laughs> <laughs> or the Giovanna hairdryer, right? Yes, exactly. I think it's perfect. I think it's the best one. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to go with... Um, I really like specifically, uh, and I know the poor thing just got nerfed, so I'll give it the shout out because it needs it. Harry Chestnuts uh, looks like me. Uh, it's fat. It's overweight. It's lazy. It looks like it's losing its hair. Uh, and it looks like it's drinking a cup of coffee, which is pretty much par for the course for me. <laughs> Unkempt, fat, and drinking coffee. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I, I connect with it. <laughs> On a personal level. <laughs> and now we're nerfed. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode. For Arthas and Sabaiku, I am Freeloader. We are the Brood Sages reminding you to stay hydrated.